Welcome to Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In today's interview, I am delighted to be joined by John Cross, Director of Investor Relations and Group Strategy at IDS PLC, formerly Royal Mail PLC, where he has been transforming the IR function over the past three and a half years. John's IR career spans an impressive almost 20 years. He began his IR career in 2004 with Telefonica Europe, or as it was known then, O2 PLC, a FTSE 50 company. After that, he led the IR function at Seven Trent for six years and then joined CYBG PLC, now known as Virgin Money, where he established the IR function prior to their IPO. Following that, he joined Convertech, where he established the IR function post-IPO. So thank you so much for joining us today, John. Let's start with Royal Mail. So I'm really fascinated by the history and story of Royal Mail. It traces its origin back over 500 years ago. For this conversation, can you briefly tell us about the business you're representing today? So International Distribution Services, or IDS, and its constituent parts with Royal Mail and General Logistics Systems, or GLS. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Clara. It's good to be here on the podcast. Yeah, Royal Mail is an interesting one. As you say, you can trace its history back to 1516, Henry VIII, who invented this role of masters of the post. So it's been around a long time. And as you said, what most people don't realise, and I didn't really realise until I started looking at the business, was there's another part of it, which is GLS, General Logistics Systems, which is a European parcels business, which was bought by Royal Mail in uh, 1999. So we all know our postie, we all know the red vans, but because GLS doesn't have its vans over here, we sort of don't really know much about it. But it's a similar model to DPD or every and operates in North America and across Europe. And Royal Mail is it's a big company, it employs 130,000 people. We've got 53,000 vehicles. Obviously, we deliver to 32 million addresses across the UK every day. It's a huge organization. GLS itself is not small. It's got about 22,000 employees. As I said, it delivers across most of most of Europe and North America. And what's interesting about the group, as you said, International Distribution Services, we changed the name from Royal Mail Group to International Distribution Services, which is quite a mouthful. But it was really to make it clear that there is a group and then there's two different businesses under that, Royal Mail and GLS. They've got really different challenges. Royal Mail, clearly letters have been in decline. We all know that e-substitution, email, electronic communications has been around for a while now. So letters are in decline. But at the same time, you've got parcels growth. And the big challenge in Royal Mail is is to try and offset that letters revenue decline with the parcels growth. And we've got to a tipping point last year, 53% of Royal Mail's revenue was in parcels, which is clearly the growth part of the business. But the challenge is really to adapt the network and how we operate and our ways of working to make sure that we are a network that's more geared towards parcels and can deliver those parcels efficiently. We're also doing stuff like collect from the doorstep, which personally, I think is a service we don't shout enough about as a business. But when Postie arrives in the morning, when your Postie's there delivering your mail, he can now actually pick up parcels for you and take them with you. So you don't have to go to the post office or drop them off anywhere else. And regulations are part of the investment case of the challenge there as well, because obviously there is a regulatory universal service obligation where we have to deliver letters six days a week. But given that letters have now declined so sharply, we're questioning with the government whether that six days is sustainable going forwards. So challenges there in Royal Mail. GLS, it's all about continuing to grow. And GLS is a parcels business which really came from a strength in business to business, but increasingly now is predominantly a business to consumer parcel delivery company. And that really happened, well, accelerated during COVID. And you can see the development of those two businesses in the overall group performance. 
So the group itself, IDS, is about 12 billion in terms of revenue. And of that, it's about 7.4 billion raw mail and about 4.7 GLS. But if you go back a couple of years to 2019-20, the group overall was 10.8 billion, but raw mail was 7.7 and GLS is 3.2 billion. If you look at last year, unfortunately, any profit that was generated was in GLS, which did about 400 million euros because Raw Mail, unfortunately, made quite a significant loss of just over 400 million because of the industrial dispute. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to that later. I'm just going to come back quickly to something you said at the start. I'm interested in the the change of the group name and how that yes. actually impacted investors' perceptions of the business. Was there significant change or shift as it opened up new access to, to investors or has anything changed as a result of the PLC name change? I have a client currently who's been very acquisitive and is considering a name change at the PLC level currently because they think it might help shift perceptions from global investors about the business. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the underlying brands, Royal Mail and GLS, are obviously unaffected by that. It was really a changing of our top co-name. And for us, it was very much an indication, I think, from the business, from the board, that we had two separate companies here with, as I've just hopefully outlined, you know, very different strategies, very different market positions. I think there was quite often amongst customers, I think amongst investors, even amongst the sales side, there was sometimes a bit of confusion when we were talking about Royal Mail Group. Were we talking about the business in the UK or were we talking about the wider group, including GLS? And so I think from a sort of strategic clarification point of view we wanted to change the name to be very clear that look there's two different businesses here they're separate and as I said given that Royal Mail has had a very challenging time over the last 18 months or so with the industrial dispute I think the board wanted to be very clear that Royal Mail needs to be financially self-sufficient we we weren't going to cross-subsidize cash flows from GLS to fund Royal Mail if there was no forward visibility of Royal Mail being able to deliver that operational change you know that I talked about now as we sit here today we have a agreement we have an agreement with the union with the communication workers union in Royal Mail it's about to go to a vote of their of their membership actually goes ballot paper should be going out today actually so we are at a point where we've sort of we were at a crossroads but I think now we've moved on and there is some grounds for optimism going forwards albeit now we've got the agreement clearly we have to go away and execute on it but we have some visibility now and so it's all about execution now over the next six to 12 months talk to me about how you personally got up to speed on the business have you had the opportunity to the company postman on their rounds Um, and i'm also interested in how you help investors understand both sides of, of the business Yes. So, yeah, I have. I mean, that's one of the best ways, I think, to understand the business better in any business, actually, is to get out there and invest in some shoe leather. If you're joining a company, get out there and meet the people, whether it's a big business or a small business. Now, with 130,000 employees, I can't go out and meet everybody. But it is really interesting to go out on a round with your postie because it brings it home to you. I mean, I think we all have our own postie that we know. But going out with mine, I realised that the role they play in the community, I mean, they know everybody on their round, and that could be hundreds and hundreds of houses. And that's a USP that no other logistics, no other delivery company has in the UK. My postie, Alan, was great because he knew from the letters I was getting from HR when I was joining the company and my contract was coming through, he knew that I worked for Royal Mail. So he was actually a great source of, of information about what the mood was like in the delivery office and how things were going. And they are a fantastic asset that we have 
GLS is an interesting business and I've been out and about around with GLS. And you mentioned investor site visits. Yes, we've taken investors to those parcel hubs I mentioned in Royal Mail, because as I say, that is really the future of the business to actually see where this investment has gone. But also taken investors out to see GLS and the investments they're making in growth, particularly in Madrid, where we just opened a new hub. But I was going to mention Hungary as well, because it's an interesting one, because GLS is actually the, the sort of market leader. It's GLS branded, but how they do it is very different. And in some cases, to say Hungary is the one that springs to mind. It's not that dissimilar to the sort of relationship that Posties have here with people in the UK. Getting out and getting understanding the business and speaking to people, I think is really important, particularly when you when I've worked at a number of companies in my career, I think that's really important. But it's also, I think, for investors as well. If what we're trying to do in investor relations is really explain the investment case and explain the strategy of the business and what we're trying to achieve, how we're going to achieve it, what's our USP, why are we different from competitors, why are we going to win in the market? I think it's really invaluable to do those site visits because it really brings it alive for both investors and the sales side. This is what you're trying to do. This is the culture of the business, particularly for GLS. We'll continue to do that, take people around the operations, both GLS and Royal Mail, as people can see it happening on the ground. So in terms of, you mentioned strategy. So you split your time between investor relations and group strategy. So talk to me about your responsibilities across both and any overlap between the two. Yeah. So. I think, understandably, probably more of my time, I think, has been, has been spent on investor relations recently, rather than necessarily the strategy bit, just because where, as I said, where we've been with the dispute with Raw Mail and clearly the visibility of that and people wanting to understand understand that more. I think, though, from my perspective, throughout my career, I've always thought what's, what's really kept me interested in investor relations, you know, I guess like a lot of people, I sort of fell into it almost by accident in sort of 2003, 2004. But what sort of kept me in the sector for so long and interested is any company you work for, I think you have a really unique perspective on the business because you get that 10,000 foot view that really only the CFO, the CEO, and probably some members of the board get. So you're in a pretty unique position. And I think, as I just said, I think if you're really adding value, this is my philosophy anyway, if you're really adding value in that investor relations role, Yes, managing the sales side, managing consensus, looking at spreadsheets, that's still an important part of the job. But actually, I think the way that you really add value is by trying to get people's heads, whether it's the buy side or the sell side, out of the spreadsheet. And as I just said, trying to communicate to them what you're trying to do, what's your business strategy. And these days, of course, business strategy itself, I think, is more complex because you've got the commercial financial strategy, but you've now got your ESG sustainability has to be more and more embedded into your core business strategy and how you engage with your stakeholders needs to be part of your strategy. So the strategy itself has has got more complicated. But if you can actually talk to people about that strategy, about what you're trying to do, why you're going to win in the market, how you're going to perform and deliver your financial numbers by outperforming the competition, etc. That's where I think where you really add value. So Having that responsibility for strategy as well, I think absolutely plays into the core of what you're trying to do in investor relations. And from a strategic perspective, at IDS, we've had this reorganization where we have the holding company with a new name and then the two separate businesses underneath. But also GLS has grown inorganically over its history. So GLS is reasonably acquisitive. So there's that part of the strategy piece. But there's also a broader one of where are our businesses going to play on the value chain? And and is there more synergy, more cooperation we can get between the two of them? Because at the moment, to be honest with you, there really isn't much synergy between GLS and Royal Mail. 
But as some of the challenges of those two businesses become more common, so for example, I mentioned GLS moving more into business to consumer parcels. Well, that's what raw mail does. So is there some learnings we can each share from each other about how you compete and win in that consumer space? And also, you know, things like cross-border. To what extent do you find the two-way sort of dialogue and feedback you get from investors actually shapes and informs the strategy at board level? I think very much. I think it should do. I don't focus too much on the share price, but Royal Mail IPO'd back in 2013 at 330 pence. And since then, it's been up as high as six pounds and it's been about as low as one pound 50. And I think I I haven't looked today, but I think we're about two pounds 15. But there's a number of shareholders that have been with us throughout that entire journey since IPO. So I think, you know, you have to certainly be very aware of their experience of being a shareholder in the business and they are very knowledgeable about the business and i've been in the business three and a half years and there's some shareholders who've actually been interacting with the business a lot longer than i have so they will have a perspective on most things and i think people who've supported you for that length of time i think it's important that that view is heard at the board now clearly the board needs to hear from a number of stakeholders and they need to clearly have the debate and make their decisions but That's part of my role, I think, is to be very clear in feeding that into the board discussion. And I'm really lucky at IDS in that I get invited along to every board meeting, not just to sort of do the IR bit, the IR monthly report or the shareholder feedback. I go along for the entirety of every board meeting. And that's with my strategy hat on as well as with my investor relations hat. I think that's actually been hugely beneficial and hugely important, particularly during the industrial dispute, to be able to, on an ongoing basis, feed in that investor perspective. And as I said, GLS has been acquisitive throughout its, since since Royal Melbourne in 1999. And some of those acquisitions, as I mentioned, haven't really gone according to plan. France was a difficult country for Royal Mail for a long time. The US has, again, been very challenging and has never really performed in the way that it was expected at the time of of the acquisitions that were made in the US. And shareholders have a view on that. They have a view on M&A and GLS. They have a view on the merits of expanding further in the US. And clearly, you have to take all of that on board when you're thinking about strategy and you're thinking about capital allocation and where the investment's going to go in the business. And to that point as well, shareholders have been very clear with us is that they do not want to see, as I mentioned earlier, they do not want to see cross-subsidization between GLS and Royal Mail. That's been a very clear message that the board has, you know, has received. And that is exactly what the board's position is. That needs to, part of your role doing IR is to make sure that the board is fully informed from the capital markets from a shareholder perspective about what perspectives are what the sentiment is and then the board needs to place that into their discussions alongside obviously all the other stakeholders in any business customers people etc etc and maybe it's good a chance now to talk about what's quite well publicized the industrial dispute in the union negotiations and I'm really interested to understand your involvement in that both from an IR and communication perspective but also strategically as well My involvement, I mean, there's clearly been people who've been involved in this for very, very deeply, both from the union side and from the Royal Mail side. And it's been difficult. I've played a very small bit part in that. What I tried to do with a a couple of presentations I made over the last sort of 18 months to the union's executive committee was really trying to set the backdrop, which was the performance of Royal Mail and the affordability of the pay deal. And I think there was a narrative from the union that clearly shareholders had done much, much better than their members 
had done over the last couple of years and the business was favoring shareholders and that we could afford more than the offer the pay offer that was on the table and as i said i played a very small bit part but but what i tried to do in some of those presentations was to one just be honest and say look this is the, this is the financial performance of the business and against that backdrop and the competitive backdrop macroeconomic backdrop here are the sell side forecasts, which you can believe or not believe, but here are the, the sell side forecasts of our performance or you know expected performance over the year. You can see we're heading for a pretty big loss in 2022-23, which is the year just finished. And so therefore, affordability and, and, and the financial sustainability of this business is, is really, really key to these discussions. And from the perspective of shareholders versus versus employees, I really hate it when it's set up like that because it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And actually, when you go back and look at the numbers, if you look at sort of things like dividends paid out versus the amount of money we've paid out in wage increases to our people, it's actually fairly equitable. I mean, that's that's one measure. People would look at other measures, including what's happened to the share price and other things. But if you just look at that one measure, actually, it's fairly fairly equitable. And you could argue, actually, that we've you know paid out more in pay rises than we have in dividends. And as I said at the start, Royal Mail is a people business, 130,000 people. And so for us, a 1% increase in the wage bill equals about £45 million. So it's a big part of our cost base. It's a big part of our, our business. As, as I mentioned earlier, our posties are our biggest asset. So and I really tried to play a, a bit part in that by really trying to set the backdrop, which was actually this is the financial expected financial performance of the business and how that plays into affordability. Let's turn now to your IR career prior to IDS and really interested in, because you've had multiple roles, both for companies prior to becoming public companies, as well as existing listed companies. So I'd like to explore some of the unique challenges of being, of being an investor relations professional to company prior to listing and then after listing. So perhaps let's compare your roles at Convertec and Virgin Money. I've always loved working with pre-IPO companies because you basically have a blank slate. So you can come in and really set up everything in the way you'd like to do it from a best practice perspective. But interested in your thoughts about being able to be brought in as an IR professional prior to an IPO. Yeah, from my perspective, prior is best. As you said, I've had differing experiences at Convertec and Virgin Money, although when I joined, it was it was CYBG, Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank. But I think coming in prior is hugely advantageous. I think companies who are going through that IPO process are sometimes reluctant to take somebody in on a permanent basis because there's still some uncertainty around the IPO and whether it will actually happen for various reasons. Virgin Money, as I said, CYBG, I you know I thought were very smart. I mean, they had a great CFO in Ian Smith, great CEO in David Duffy. There was a high chance of it happening because National Australia Bank had stated that it was going to you know demerge the business. And really, there were very other than private equity. There are very few buyers for that business to, you know, for for a trade sale to happen because of competition issues. That's one of the reasons why I joined and was sort of happy to join prior to the IPO. I think there was a high high probability of that going ahead. And I think getting in there six months before the transaction actually happens, it really helps to support the management team, who, as I'm, you know, I'm sure you all know, Clara, having worked on these, you know, the management team can be pulled in, you know, 10 different ways uh, in an IPO between different advisors, different stakeholders, particularly as you get closer and closer to actually launching the deal and then having to go on the roadshow. And I think continuity throughout 
the process is really helpful so you go through that very intense period of you know the documentation of launching the offer of going out on the road of the listing happening and you might go and open the market on the london stock exchange and then after that you've then got to move forward and move into the next phase of your ir program which is that continuing to build that dialogue with your investors maybe look at combatech the private equity funds that own combatech still owned about 60 percent of the business post the initial listing in october 2016 and so particularly combatech part of the part of the role was we needed to go out and build that target list of investors because the private equity funds were at some point going to sell down their remaining stakes and we needed to have liquidity in the market we needed to have buyers out there who were sort of ready and willing to go and understood the business and were, and were, were at a point where they could make that investment decision so i think for that continuity perspective i think is really important and when i joined Combatech and that was about four months three or four months after the IPO and I remember they'd just done the IPO in October they just had their year end in December they had to do the annual report in February and there was sort of nobody in the business to do the annual report so they were, they were it was really tough on the people who were there a friend of mine you know Bobby Leach who was comms director I think Bobby sort of shouldered most of the burden of that you know but the brokers pitched in as well but I think that was quite difficult for the company having just been through that IPO process so I hate to blow my own trumpet, but I think after I arrived and the next annual report after that, I think there was a significant improvement all around just in terms of not just the project management, but actually using the ARA as a as a chance to communicate your investment case. It was much improved. So I think certainly getting in prior is by far the preferable option prior to the IPA actually happening. Although, you know, in some cases it's difficult to do that either because of uncertainty around the transaction, et cetera, et cetera. But I love my time at both of those businesses, both IPOs, but actually actually both in their own ways, very different in terms of the approach, in terms of how IR was involved in that transaction, but also the actual deals themselves are very different. We quite often get asked what the right stage for IR to be appointed in an IPO process. And, and my general view is IR is always appointed too late in the process. It's interesting to hear you talk about of coming in six months before and actually being able to start supporting the company in terms of setting up the reporting structures, particularly around your full year results process. Um, And often I feel that other advisors, brokers, financial PR are appointed quite far in advance of an IPO. And I would like to see IR be tabled much earlier in the process to really get those structures in place in line with best practice and often we get contacted a couple of weeks before an ITF and at that point everything's in progress and it's a rush to get through the transaction and you don't often have the time and the headspace to really start thinking about your longer term communication and IR strategy. I totally agree and with everything you said and it goes back to my point around continuity as you you said if if there's somebody on board inside the company before the transaction then you can start as you said to set up those processes and start to prepare yourself for being a plc listed company i don't want to be harsh on the banks and the advisors but but sometimes there is a feeling of they will hold your hand all the way through and they will get you to the point of the listing and then you know to an extent they then sort of now that the transaction is done they sort of disappear and as a company you're on your own to then continue you know it doesn't stop for you at the ipo for some of the advisors it will because they were just on board to to do the ipo once the listing is done they've done their job but you as a company have to continue 
with that process of being a PLC listed company with shareholders, with reporting requirements, regulatory requirements, government governance requirements, all of this, understanding of market abuse regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And clearly you will have other advisors and brokers who will who will help you with that. But yes, I've seen that in terms of that continuity, being able to get in and prepare not just for the IPO, but for life after the IPO as a listed PLC, I think is just invaluable. And I, and I think again, you know, going back to going back to CYBG Virgin Money, I think that was that was really important in that situation to be able to do that because the transaction, as I said, was very different from Combatech. It was a it was a partial IPO. It was mainly a demerger, so it was largely National Australia Bank demerging 75% of the business to its its existing shareholders and a 25% IPO on top. And the big challenge there was clearly having a, a UK retail bank, which had a very, very large proportion of its shareholders in Australia. So just to your point, the internal logistics and the administration of how you manage an IR program where you're in completely different time zones and how do you plan your roadshows and how do you plan your communication and because a lot of the time I would be communicating with people in Australia either very, very early in the morning, like five, six o'clock, or very late at night, like nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And so how do you how do you manage all of that? And being able to, to think about that and set all of that up in advance was absolutely invaluable. I think if I'd been brought in a month or two after the IPO and having to deal all, you know, with all of that with a blank sheet of paper and nothing in place, I think it would have been a very different story. And based on your experience, any other learnings or things you would have maybe done differently for any tips you can give to an IR individual who might be a company that's considering an IPO in the future? Well, I think, as you said, I would be looking to get in before the transaction, albeit, as I mentioned, that's not without risk. I think if you're coming in afterwards, which, as you as you said, you know, tends to maybe maybe be more more the norm. I think what's really important is to be able to get up to speed quickly with what's happened during the IPO. And that's back to my point about going around and speaking to people. Now, of course, you'll have all of the materials. You'll have the prospectus. You'll have the roadshow presentation. You probably have meeting notes from all the roadshow meetings, et cetera, et cetera. But just getting out there, and certainly, as I said, at Combatech, this is what I did when I did join after the after the, the listing had already happened, is to get out there and speak to the sell side and speak to the big investors and go and speak, you know, in Combatech, speak to the private equity funds who still held 60% of the stock to really try and understand what the hot issues were during the IPO. What were the key questions? What were the key issues? What were the key debating points? And that'll probably help you then think about your IR program and help set your strategy, certainly for the next for the next 12 to 18 months. So delving now a little bit further into your IR history, Talk to me about your communication program at Seven Trent. So you ran a takeover defense against Long River Partners. Your top 20 shareholders were supportive during that time and, and the share price continued to perform well. Any learnings or tips for any IR professionals when managing a, a takeover approach? Yeah, that's casting my mind back. That was actually, if I remember rightly, that was the first approach for a FTSE 100 under the put up or shut up rules the Pusu which had just had just come in at that stage so it was interesting so we were we were the first ones to go through that sort of 28 day ticking clock which I think actually helped us in terms of that defense I probably don't have any huge new insight into that other than saying what really served us well and I think our advisors did a great job by the way during that but I, I think what really served us well was having those strong relationships with the shareholder base going into it. 
there wasn't any, as I said, particularly clever thing we did or we changed our approach during that 28-day period when we were sort of getting offers from this private consortium, which you mentioned, Long River Partners. Having that solid relationship with your biggest investors so that they can understand, as we've been talking about, understand what your business strategy is, understand what the potential of your business is so that when an offer comes in that's unsolicited, they can have a they can take a view on whether they think that offer delivers value or not now clearly we were out in the market communicating very heavily under the the rules and restrictions that you have in that situation the takeover rules but going into it with that understanding and that approach of you know open communication talking about the issues of the business and 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 helping people really come to a full appreciation of it then stood us in good stead during the actual 28 day period and what was interesting was Finally, Long River Partners, the 28-day period, they fell away. And then we immediately went on a roadshow with all of our top investors because we, we couldn't, as I said, we were restricted, obviously, during the process in, in speaking to them. But we, we went and did a roadshow with our larger investors and just talked them through the whole process and talked them through our thinking and why did we reject that offer and why did we not make a recommended offer to shareholders and those meetings actually could have been quite difficult because a lot of shareholders might have actually been quite attracted by the price that Longer Partners were offering, but but they had made it clear that they wouldn't proceed with the offer unless it was recommended by the Seven Trend Board, and the board never got to a position where they could recommend it. So there could have been some misalignment of views there and some very difficult meetings. But actually, that roadshow was very straightforward in the sense that we talked people through the thinking of the board and the logic and where we saw the value in the business. And because this was all a narrative that we'd been through before with most of those shareholders, they were very supportive of our position and made those meetings quite straightforward. Now, of course, you always have some funds who were speculating in the stock and who wanted the deal to go through. And some of those calls and some of those meetings I had with people were not <laughs> were not so easy. But in my head, that was a different subsector of investors. Those were hedge funds who'd come into the transaction on the back of that news flow. And they were incentivized to see the deal go through. But our top 15, top 20 shareholders actually were, were, were really, really supportive of the board. And the funny thing I do remember about that was I was, as I said, the deal fell away and we went out and immediately saw our shareholders and we did a US leg of that roadshow. And it happened to be the offer came through during the summer. We had to do our, our full year results in the middle of the offer period, which was an interesting one. But I was also going on holiday with my family to the US. So I came back from the roadshow. I think it was something like a Thursday evening from the US. And then I was back at Heathrow on the Saturday with my family flying back to the US. And when I got to US immigration and border control, I got a really strange look when the guy looked at my passport and he said, yeah, but you only left the States two days ago. Why, what are you doing coming back? So he thought it was some kind of visa scam or something that I was doing. Particularly, I was there with my family. It's like I was trying to get my family into the US illegally or something. So it took me a bit of time to get back through customs after that. But that was probably the only negative thing about that roadshow, which I said on the whole was actually really, really supportive from shareholders. And at Seven Trent, is it right that you worked very closely with corporate affairs and also the regulatory teams to develop an integrated communication strategy? Interested in, again, any learnings you can share from communicating across those different areas of the business? Yeah, what was really interesting at Seven Trent and what really attracted me to that role when I joined was it was a company where the regulatory environment is a key part of the investment case. And that regulatory framework, that structure was going to change significantly. And it did change significantly during my sort of, you know, six and a half, seven years while I was there. 
And what's Seven Trent? Again, you know, really great management team of uh, Mike McKeon and Tony Ray as CFO and CEO. They had an approach where they saw this change was coming and, and the change was effectively deregulating the sector in the same way that had happened to electricity maybe sort of 15 years before, 10, 15 years before. Obviously, in a water sector, people were still tied into only being able to get their water supply from their local provider. So it was regional monopolies. And the regulator off what effectively wanted to start to break that down and introduce more of an element of competition. And one of the ways they were going to do that was by setting targets for water companies. That would be targets around leakage, around sewer flooding, et cetera, et cetera. And if a business outperformed those targets, then they were able to charge a little bit more on customer bills. And if they underperformed, the regulator would penalise them by saying, well, now you have to charge less on the customer bills next year. They're called ODIs, Outcome Delivery Incentives. So the Seven Trent team were clear that they wanted to have a seat at the table during all of these discussions, during this regulatory change, because it was happening anyway. And there were a number of people in the sector who actually didn't want the change to happen. The, the, the water sector had been privatised about 20 years previously. It was, as I said, these local monopolies, which had some regulatory protection. The model was all inflation-linked. So particularly from a fixed-income side, a lot of investors liked the sector because it was inflation-linked, and that worked for them as you know pension funds, annuity providers, etc. So a lot of people and businesses in the sector that didn't really want the change to happen and were vehemently against it. But what was really nice at Seven Trent was everybody was on board with trying to deliver this integrated campaign, whether that was to the media, to the capital markets, to regulators, to government. Interesting you mentioned bondholders. I believe debt investor relations is really starting to professionalise itself as well. And how did you kind of learn or develop a bondholder communication programme? Yeah, I mean, as I said, certainly in the water sector, I mean, that's a huge a huge part of the capital structures of those businesses. And, you know, what was important, as I just mentioned, during a period of regulatory change is to make sure that investor views, but also bondholder views, were fed into that debate and were heard by government, by regulators. And we certainly encouraged both bondholders and shareholders, if they wanted to, to write directly to various, you know, bodies or individuals to make sure that their views were heard. The way that I approached it was to not be too prescriptive about fixed income versus equity. And I know some people will, this is an equity meeting, it's not a fixed income meeting, so these people can't join. And I was, my approach was very much, look, 90% of the questions between those two constituents will be exactly the same. Okay, the fixed income guys are probably going to focus potentially more on cash flow, on leverage, on credit metrics. But actually, the way that we should approach that campaign is to bring the bondholders inside the tent and say, yeah, you're just as important to us. And and they were in the water sector in terms of providers of capital. They're just as important as the equity holders are. And so I think, you know, to have the same people in the same meeting in the same room and, and you're debating capital allocation and you're debating dividend versus paying down debt versus leverage versus, you know, I, I think it's it's actually quite interesting to have those different constituents in the room and have that debate rather than have individual conversations as a company with the equity side and then with the fixed income side. As I said, from my perspective, I'm happy. And funnily enough, coming back to where I am today, you know, in you know, IDS, we've got two euro bonds out in the market, one of which needs to be refinanced in about 12 months' time, July 24. So in the next 12 months, we will be in the market with an offer to refinance that bond. And so at a conference we just attended recently, 
there were some fixed income investors that wanted to join a meeting at the conference with equity holders. I'm very happy to do that because we'll be needing to speak to the fixed income guys pretty soon and and and, and we'll be launching an offer at some point and hopefully they'll be interested and we need them to lend us some money. So again, why not involve them in the conversation? Because, you know, to my, you know, my experience, 90, 80-90% of what they want to know is very similar to what the equity holders want to know as well. That's really interesting. And actually, one question I haven't answered that interested, have you got any thoughts around technological developments in investor relations? Artificial intelligence was a big topic of debate yeah. at the IR Society conference that took place in, in June recently. So just interested, anything you can share on that subject? It's a really interesting one. I'm not I'm not sure yet if we really know what the impact is going to be on. I mean, the obvious, to my mind anyway, the obvious impacts is, you know, you could get chat GPT to write large sections of your annual report for you potentially, which might be helpful. You know, I think everyone in IR over the last seven, eight, nine years, we've all been dealing with the growth of, you know, index passive funds of automated flows of you know companies having algorithms that scan your results release for positive words and negative words and they try and work out what what the sentiment is in your release and then you know trade around that particularly on the on the dare results itself so i think this has been coming into you know fund management into into the market over a number of years but exactly how it's all going to manifest itself i'm not you know whether it's a big you know necessarily a big positive or a big negative I think we're still trying to make our minds up at the moment. I mean, I know you have had your headlines like we had the other week where, you know, somebody said artificial intelligence is going to, you know, it's going to start killing us in five years or whatever the headline was. Is is I think it's like slightly bizarre and alarmist. Clearly, there are going to be real challenges, I think, that we're all going to have to think about and understand and work out how we're how we're going to manage. I mean, you know, even with my son, you're talking about, you know, homework and doing English essays and asking, you know, English comprehension questions and using chat GP now, it's it's particularly for that sort of GCSE type level, it's actually starting to be really difficult now for teachers to work out what's been written by the pupil and what's been written yeah. by chat GPT. So our English essays now are now a thing of the past. I don't know. And and, and I think probably half of the problem I think with artificial intelligence is we just we just don't understand the applications fully yet. We don't understand what it's going to be able to do and therefore what the impact will be what the consequences will be and how we and how we deal with that so i think we're still feeling our way a bit it's sort of really not really an answer to the question but i think part of the problem is we don't quite understand what the impact going to be yet but as ever i don't think it's going to be the death of the of the active fund manager i think there will always be a role for stock pickers for you know people with 30 years experience in the city uh you know to be managing money but I'm sure on the fringes, this will this will start to have more and more of an impact over the next couple of years. And does it add to market volatility? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I'm not sure at the moment, but it's certainly going to be interesting. And I think just to wrap up, do you have any particularly amusing or funny situations you've experienced working in across your career in investor relations that you can share? The one that I hope people will find amusing was back in my Seven Trent days, and we were in Boston on a roadshow. And we were talking about potentially doing water trading with Anglian water. But the person that we were meeting, the fund manager, was surprise, surprise in Boston. They were an Irish Catholic. And I forget what year it was, but it was a time they were just electing a new pope. And the smoke was coming out of the Sistine Chapel and CNN was on the screen in the corridor outside the meeting room. And this lady was clearly distracted by what was happening with the election of the pope. 
And so we said, look, if you want to take a break and you want to go outside and kind of hear the news, you know, honestly, it's no problem. Please do that. And she said, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Let's get back to the meeting. I'll concentrate now. And then her first question, having said that, was she said, so tell me about this water trading with Anglican water. And we all looked at her and we went, no, seriously, you just need to go outside and and, and, and watch the news and see what's happening with the Pope for five minutes and then come back in. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's brilliant. Right. Look, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today, John. No, that's great, Clara. Really good to speak to you. And uh, as I said, very happy to uh, come on the podcast and have a chat. So thanks very much. And thank you for joining Inquire, the Investor Relations podcast. Please look out for our next episode in conversation with senior investor relations professionals in the UK.